Thanks for downloading this podcast, which is a shameless celebration of America, but it's also a celebration of things we love to use in our lives, a celebration of innovation, down-to-earth style. Earlier this year, we led a search for America's greatest innovation, in part to recognize the level of ingenuity that's made this country and our planet a cleaner, safer, richer, generally better place to be. It's an American thing. Uh, This special series was produced with research assistance from our friends at the ASME, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, and the Lemelson Foundation. Key to all of this was your insight, your contributions, your choices, and as you'll hear, the innovation that came out on top was something you brought to us. Coming up, you'll hear the top 10 innovations. Each had its own champion, as well as a range of interviews we aired along the way on our search for America's greatest innovation. Some of the examples were more American than innovative, you might say. Only an American, for instance, would get the idea to electrify a guitar to make it a stage instrument you could actually hear in the back rows of the auditorium. Well, combine electricity with the guitar, and the rest change music forever. Hi, this is Vernon Reed, guitarist and founding member of the band Living Color. Any conversation that talks about an innovation that's changed our world forever has to include the electric guitar. Exhibit A, Chuck Berry. Exhibit B, B.B. King. The sound, the magic, the emotion that comes out of an electric guitar has made music what it is today. And it all started right here in the United States. The guy who developed the first one was a musician named George Beecham, who got help from an engineer named Adolf Rickenbacker. Their problem? Guitars just weren't loud enough to fill large rooms and concert halls. So other instruments, like pianos and trumpets, took center stage. In 1931, after years of tinkering, Beecham and Rickenbacker debuted the world's first electric guitar. It was a small aluminum instrument meant to be played on your lap. They called it the frying pan. At first, it was Hawaiian musicians that got the most use out of the new amplified guitar. But following close behind were blues, jazz, and country artists. Then came the early rock and roll pioneers. Think Charlie Christian, Buddy Holly. As time progressed, so did guitar players. Hendrix, Santana, Clapton, Page, Fripp. They all took the electric guitar to another level. They laid the foundation for bands like the one I started in the late 80s. We all owe a lot to Mr. Beecham and Mr. Rickenbacker. Their gift to our world paved the way for another kind of innovation, one of artistic expression and also a countercultural movement that changed our country forever and for the better. Like the late, great Frank Zappa said, shut up and play your guitar. Jimmy, Jimi Hendrix. The electric guitar is nominated by Vernon Reed to kick off our greatest American innovation series. The electric guitar is at the intersection of art, technology, and culture. That's also created something completely new in all of those places the electric guitar has. Well, this crowded intersection is where our next guests have found parking spaces. Storm Gluer and Benham Plum are both part of the Department of Music and Entertainment Industry Studies at the University of Colorado right here in Denver. Between the two of them, they have more than 20 years' experience in the music industry. And if you add my 30 years or so in the news business, we've got 50 years of experience in media right here at this table. Welcome to The Takeaway. Thanks for having us. So let's talk, first of all, about why the electric guitar is actually a plausible entrant in this Greatest Innovation series. Because I, I at first thought, no, no, that's ridiculous. But actually, it started out as a let's solve the amplification problem of guitars, and it changed everything else. That's the way innovation works, right? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Do you think yeah. this works? Do you think this is a, this is a good – I mean, how do you see – one change having this ripple effect, and how do you study that sort of thing? One of the big things is it's removed some of the barriers to entry for people. The way that people can, um, you know, 
basically afford a, a guitar plus some music equipment, and if they've got the right team, they can make a hit record in their basement if they know what they're doing. And and so that has removed the barriers to entry because back in the day, if we're talking you know in the '60s and Dylan and people like that, they had to go into a legit studio and and you know get funding to do that. But now, if if you you know work hard and you save up your money, you can afford to basically build your own studio. And, and that has removed a lot of barriers to entry for people from our production point of view, too. And created the pop music scene in Africa, for oh, instance. Yes. 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 You can't yeah. imagine it without the electric guitar. Right. Uh, yeah. And all the studios that are in you know, garages in Ghana and uh, uh, Ivory Coast and on all of those places that produce yes, records. Absolutely. And, and you can also look at it from the consumer side. Uh, a person now has access to music they may not have had any access to previously. Mm-hmm. I joke to my students at the University of Colorado Denver that that uh, a fan of Hungarian disco can now find their <laughs> their music and their fellow fans, you know, through the technology we That's have right. now. That's and right. not only that, the Hungarian disco artist can find that group from his own basement, mm-hmm. from his or her own basement. <laughs> Which is Looking for Sugar Man, the story, that oh, great, great fantastic uh, film about mm-hmm. a community of listeners in South Africa connecting with a forgotten musician in the United States, impossible but for exactly Mm -hmm. the innovations you're talking about. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thanks uh, to both of you for for being here. What do we call your... Your uh, your department, you, your Storm Glor, associate professor of music and entertainment industry studies at University of Colorado Denver, and you're an assistant professor of the same thing. What's the the whole department that you're in? Well, uh, th- that is part of the College of Arts and Media, and uh, that's we, an innovation all by itself. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for mm-hmm. being here, guys. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, I'm Ray Kelly, former commissioner of the New York City Police Department. Kevlar stands for just about everything I love about this country. It's strong, it's versatile, and it has impacted thousands of lives, not just in America, but around the world. When I first became a police officer in the 1960s, New York City was a very different place, and Kevlar certainly wasn't part of our uniform. Little did we know that work was being done in the laboratory in Delaware, that would transform how our men and women in uniform confront violent situations. And not just on the streets of New York, but in the Middle East, in Africa. In fact, just about everywhere the U.S. military is deployed. At that lab in Delaware, a remarkable chemist named Stephanie Qualick was hard at work. Qualick began experimenting and eventually stumbled across a material that was five times the strength of steel. It was given a name and a trademark, and about a decade later, Kevlar was being used to make bullet-resistant vests. Police departments started using Kevlar in the 1970s, and helmets made of Kevlar entered U.S. military service in the 1980s. Today, it's everywhere, from motorcycle gear to shoes to cell phones. It's been used in airplanes bridges and even butchers gloves but most important kevlar is responsible for saving the lives of our men and women in uniform before stephanie qualick died in 2014 at age 90 she said this i don't think there's anything like saving someone's life to bring you satisfaction and happiness hi i'm richard einhorn i'm a musician a composer and a Grammy Award-winning producer. From the BBC World Service, coming to you live from London. I'm willing me, to bet James that you Glass. love the radio as much as I do. Maybe it's something we take for granted, unless you're one of 37 million adults in the U.S. who suffer from some kind of hearing loss. Hearing loss. Hearing loss. Hearing loss. Luckily, we've come a long way since the 19th century, when the only solution to hearing loss was the ear trumpet. It actually worked pretty well, but it looked ridiculous. So let's take a moment to praise an American engineer named Miller Reese Hutchinson, who came up with the first battery-powered hearing aid in 1898. After a few tweaks, his device was small enough to be carried around in a bag or a purse. In striking contrast, designer Sheila Ingram demonstrates one of the latest sub-miniature transitor hearing aids with a tiny battery that lasts for about 30 hours. In 1955, 
a company in Ossining, New York, called Sonotone International, produced the world's first behind-the-ear model, which is still a very common style of hearing aid. Modern hearing aids are extremely sophisticated, truly a miracle of science. They're small and discreet. They amplify some sounds while reducing others. As I mentioned, I'm a musician, so it's important to me that the audience can hear my compositions. But there's another reason why I'm so passionate about hearing aids. I wear them every day. Several years ago, I woke up to find that all the hearing in my right ear was gone, probably due to a viral infection. My right ear never came back, and my left ear, already not doing well, got worse. I thought, how am I ever going to hear anyone again? But with hearing aids, I can stay connected to other people. American ingenuity has transformed my life and the lives of millions around the world. The innovators and inventors in our series that have brought their ideas to market have all shared that there is something they all have in common, a headwind of doubt and skepticism, and even the difficulty of immigrants finding their way in a new country that all push them to seek out new ideas and embrace innovations. Certainly the headwind for African-Americans seeking technological solutions could not have been greater, working at the height of the Jim Crow segregation era in the South and rampant racism in the North. Keith Holmes is the author of Black Inventors, Crafting 200 Years of Success, a book that includes innovator Garrett A. Morgan, the son of slaves. Garrett's granddaughter, Sandra Morgan, says that didn't stop him from trying to solve the problems facing his community and beyond. My grandfather was a man of a lot of ideas and a lot of ambition. And so as he was growing up, he always thought that he'd like to work with his head, not his hands. He understood that there were a lot of opportunities for improvement on lots of things. And he was a bold fellow that uh, gave it a try. Was the uh, the expectations at the time for people like your grandfather, African-Americans, um, a boon or uh, an inspiration for him to be bolder than he might have otherwise been? Well, I think that it was bigger than being African-American or looking to African-American innovation or invention. You know, at the time, my grandfather was, he was born in Kentucky, he was living in Kentucky and then later in Cincinnati, and he was really drawn to Cleveland or to Northeast Ohio because there was such a significant amount of business going on here and innovation. Remember, this is the time of Edison. This is the time of, you know, the railroads um, greatly expanding, automotive industry, and he simply wanted to be a part of the buzz. Keith, how did the characters that uh, you've written about reflect that sense of, here I can do anything? You know, it's it's the same thing that Sandra was saying, that the creative opportunities, the economic development, uh, the fact that they didn't let race become a factor in terms of their creativity. And with the explosion of the economy at that time, people saw an opportunity where if they came up with an idea or an improvement in an idea, they had an opportunity to get some economic rewards from that. And from my studies, that's exactly what was happening at that time. You know, most Americans who, who don't know much about their history, period, you know, could give you a list of innovators in America, and it would probably be Thomas Edison and Steve Jobs, you know, period, the end, whether they're African-American or, or you know, white or immigrants from uh, Europe, uh, Holocaust survivors, that whole thing. People just don't know the broad uh, culture of innovators. Give us some names of people and stories that, uh, to you, typify the 200 years of success that you write about in your book. Well, we got to talk about Elijah McCoy, who came up with the automatic lubricator. And what made his invention or innovation much more different than the previous ones is that, you know, could you imagine riding on a train or a bus and the operator tells you, well, hold up one minute, we, we have to stop this train or bus, and somebody has to get out with a little oil can and oil all the different parts well, the de- invention that Elijah McCoy came up with eliminated that, saving time. Machines could run t- for 24-7. As you know, with the expansion of the industrial complex here in the United States, running machines for a longer time meant a, a large amount of income could be made from that. So Elijah McCoy is one. We have Louis Lattimore. With Let's the talk about McCoy for a second okay. because his brilliant idea was people thought of the machine as there was the 
the pumping of the fuel that turned the gears and all of that, mm-hmm. and that the oil was something different, McCoy said, why can't it all be the same? Exactly. Why can't you have an oil pump just like you have a fuel pump, and why can't the, the oil just sort of integrate itself with the uh, metal? And that's really, conceptually, exactly what innovation is about. And it's interesting you brought that point up because now we're talking about cars, we're talking about trains, we're talking about boats, planes. All of these require some form of automatic lubrication as well as the machineries that were being run at that time. So he's also an, uh, an inductee into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Which brings us to Garrett Morgan. Now, he developed a lot of things, but why don't you start uh, the list uh, of uh, inventions that uh, your grandfather was responsible for, Sandra? Well, my grandfather held five patents total. One is the Garrett Morgan Safety Hood, which serves as the precursor to the modern-day gas mask. And what it incorporated was a a carbon pack that allowed individuals to spend way more time in toxic environments because they were able to filter the air. The other most notable patent that you would probably recognize is the traffic signal. There were a number of traffic signals on the market. Most of them just said stop and go, which was problematic for a number of reasons. Number one, there was no protocol for the intersection. And number two, there were a a number of people who at that time could not read. So my grandfather's, really his... his, uh, invention was an addition to the traffic signal, which is now the amber light. And part of his inspiration was there were so many different types of vehicles and individuals on the road at the time. And my grandfather, along with my father and my uncle John, uh, witnessed a horrific accident many years ago that my father talked about until the very end, until he passed away. And so it obviously had a significant impact on him as a child to see uh, an automobile hit a horse-drawn carriage, um, which resulted in grave injuries to a little girl. And as well, the, you know, the horse had to be put down right at the scene. And so it was pretty terrifying for him. And it was something that, that uh, really drove my grandfather to do something about it. Instead of tolerating those kinds of uh, mistakes and industrial errors, uh, innovators see it as a problem to be solved, and they solve the problem. What do you think the situation is like today in terms of uh, invention and uh, innovation? Is it an egalitarian uh, system in the United States? Is it uh, anybody who has a great idea gets ahead? In all honesty, I think that it's um, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, innovation has never been greater uh, because there's so many outlets and so many opportunities to invent. But the other side of that is that I think that uh, a lot of innovation has taken place uh, within corporate sectors and within within other business sectors. And so it's, I think, more difficult for independent inventors like my grandfather to invent, and if they come up with an idea, to bring that idea to the market. Keith, final thoughts on that? Uh, she's absolutely correct. I mean, in 2013, Japan alone had filed for 700,000 patents and inventions, and the United States is 500,000. But I think the opportunity is here more now than ever before, because when you have a situation such as the economy and, uh, and or a war going on, that's the time for the greatest growth when it comes to technology. People are looking for a way to improve uh, upon what's been made or come up with a new idea, or they're looking to increase their income. So the opportunity here now is the best time for innovation, particularly here in the United States. Keith Holmes is the author of Black Inventors, Crafting Over 200 Years of Success. Thanks, Keith. Thank you. And Sandra Morgan is granddaughter of the inventor Garrett A. Morgan. Thanks so much, Sandra. Thank you. Hi, I'm Deborah Nadulman Landis, and I'm in the business of making movies. As a costume designer, it's my job to create characters that the audience will never forget. And the one thing that costume designers can't do without is one of America's most remarkable and underappreciated inventions the sewing machine. Indiana Jones and his trademark hat and leather jacket. It's my design. That belongs in a museum. And Michael Jackson's jacket. You know, the one he wore in Thriller. That's my design, too. For the millions of men and women caught up in the Industrial Revolution, the sewing machine was transformative. 
It provided a place for new immigrants in the job market. And for the first time, it gave women the opportunity to make their own money, join organized labor, and to start their own businesses. The sewing machine, as we know it today, didn't become a marketable appliance until 1846. That's when inventor Elias Howe patented a new design that revolutionized the clothing industry. For too long, the sewing machine's significance has been overlooked. It deserves its place next to the light bulb and the refrigerator as an invention whose social, cultural, and economic impact has been profound. We rely on the sewing machine for our stylish jeans and boots, to upholster our homes, tents, offices, and cars, and for some of us to make Harrison Ford and Michael Jackson look amazing. Alec Ross used to be senior advisor on innovation for Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. It was a brand-new position designed to find creative solutions to the world's problems. Alec's new book, Industries of the Future, is all about the changing global economy and how the United States can take full advantage of it. Ross says this country's innovative spirit comes from citizens being confronted by a new land and having to constantly improvise to survive. Unless you're a Native American... The very act of coming to the United States is a remarkably risky act. And if you think about you know, the, the frontier culture here, look, this is in our DNA. So to be American is to be inherently a little bit more of a risk taker and to imagine and invent a future. And is there a way to bottle this, to marshal it? It's certainly a phenomenon that seems self-evident when you – you know, think about Americans surviving on the frontier. But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you can direct it at particular problems. No, it, you're, you're absolutely right, John. I think what you have to do is make sure that conditions exist that enable it. So, and this is, look, I'm going to geek out here for a second. But in things like our tax code, so we have provisions in our tax code that incent high risk early stage investment. So, you know, making it financially advantageous to give money to a couple 24-year-olds in a basement. Those kinds of tax policies carried interest on venture capital and all of these sorts of things don't exist in most other economies. And so there are things you can do actually as a matter of public policy to enable this, strangely enough. Now, that, of course, is a fairly blunt uh, mechanism in the sense that we'll give you money if you do something innovative. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to come up with something. Um, the question is, when you're on the ground, when you're actually, you know, in the garage of Steve Jobs, and then I, I gather there was a garage next to Steve Jobs that probably wasn't so innovative, how do you determine the differences between those two and try to encourage that same kind of setting going forward in the, in the next generation? It's interdisciplinary learning. You are so, You get it. Like you are actually one of the few people who have pointed this out. It's interdisciplinary learning. So let's let's talk about Facebook for a second. Everybody says, oh, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg, computer science genius. Sure, maybe. But you want to know what was just as important? Behavioral psychology. Figuring out how people learn. Figuring out how people make decisions and other sorts of things and baking that into the engineering. Interdisciplinary learning. Ten years from now. I think that there are going to be fields like genomics, which are going to be unrecognizable to where they are today. I think that in 10 years, people are going to think that we were practicing caveman medicine in 2016. And so I'm really excited about the world 10 years from now. I, 20, 30, 40 years, I think, will probably, will probably throw me off a little bit. But I'm really excited about 10 years from now. All right. Well, we'd love to climb in your time machine. Alec Ross is a former senior advisor on innovation for Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. His new book is called The Industries of the Future. Uh, I've got to ask this. If Hillary becomes president, what are you, Secretary of the Future? <laughs> I don't know. I think that my kids and my wife would love for me to stay at home and stay in the private sector, and I would never be so presumptuous, but had a great four-year run working at her elbow, and, you know, if she asked me to come back in, it would be hard to say no. Hi, this is Kirk Johnson. I'm a scientist, author, 
and director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. And I actually have friends who uh, claim they don't like air conditioning. They're right. I mean, when you think about what is air conditioning, it's just a definite solution to a problem. <laughs> the reason I love the air conditioner is because temperature and humidity control are crucial in the preservation of priceless artifacts, natural history specimens, and works of art. Here at the National Museum of Natural History, we have a huge number of delicate objects that would be in really bad shape without temperature control. 30 million insects carefully pinned into tiny boxes. Four and a half million plants pressed onto sheets of paper. Two million cultural artifacts, including 400,000 photographs. As the most visited natural history museum in the world, we understand the cultural need to preserve our past. The man we have to thank for air conditioning, and therefore climate control, was an engineer named Willis Carrier. Just like us here at the museum, Willis was interested in more than just keeping cool. As a young man in 1902, he was hired by a printing shop in Brooklyn. The print shop had a problem. During the humid summer months, there was no way to keep the ink from smearing before it dried. Young Willis discovered he could solve this problem by dehumidifying the air, which also made it cooler. So much so that everyone in the print shop loved it. Yeah. Hmm. That's nice. All right. By the middle of the 20th century, air conditioning had transformed American life and allowed museums like ours to preserve countless delicate specimens and artifacts. Welcome back to The Takeaway. Todd Zwillick with you today. And as you heard just a minute ago, the air conditioner made Kirk Johnson's career in preservation possible. But it's also transformed the way we live and actually where we live. And according to our next guest, the air conditioner also remade our electoral landscape and paved the way for a new brand of conservatism and a new kind of Republican candidate. I believe we can embark on a new age of reform in this country and an era of national renewal. Of course, President Ronald Reagan there on the eve of his first presidential election back in 1980. Stephen Johnson writes about the air conditioner and the advent of Ronald Reagan in his book, How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World, which is also a TV series, and he joins me now. Hi, Stephen. Uh, It's great to be here. So you're going to make the case that the advent of the air conditioner helped create Ronald Reagan, and we'll get to that. But tell me, what did politics in America look like before air conditioning? Well, the big thing is that you just didn't have that many people in the southern states, what we now call the Sun Belt. They weren't that populated. Uh, there were there were only a million people in, in Florida in, in 1920. Um, you know, there was no one in Las Vegas, almost no one in Arizona. And these these places just were really hostile places to live. Uh, you know, they were incredibly hot. They were some of them were incredibly humid. And so most of the population was was based in the more temperate states or in the, in the Northeast because it was just really difficult to live there. And air conditioning changed all that. So air conditioning comes along, invented, by the way, to cool the ink in hot printing press rooms so that it wouldn't run down the page uh, in places like Brooklyn and New York during the summer. But then people get it in their homes, and now I take it they can they can consider living in a place like Jacksonville, Florida, or Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, I mean, basically, for about... 40 years after air conditioning was invented, Americans would have experienced it just in, you know, movie theaters and some office buildings. It was not something that was in the home. And then right after World War II, the the first window units uh, appear. And shortly after that, you have kind of central air designed uh, into homes. And almost immediately, it triggers the largest migration of human beings in the history of the United States. All these people who apparently always wanted to live in Scottsdale, (laughs) but just couldn't do it because it was 105 degrees during the day, suddenly moved to Scottsdale or they moved to Dallas or they moved to Houston or they moved to Miami. Well, it, com- and- it completely makes sense that people moved because they could sit inside and not melt. That makes sense. But air conditioning doesn't select for conservatives, of course. So how does this mass migration translate to a new Southern conservatism that Ronald Reagan was able to take advantage of? The, a huge number of the people moving south are older, more conservative because they're older, they're retirees. So it's the idea now of like retiring in the desert or retiring in Florida, um, which didn't, you know, you didn't want to be 80 years old and sit around in 100 degree weather. But if it could always be 69 
and and you know no humidity that was a delightful place to to spend your final years and so the the population grows and grows older and more politically conservative because of that age and there is a 29 vote swing in the electoral college in the space of about 20 years from the north to the south so suddenly there is this what came to be called the Sunbelt Coalition of older, more conservative voters who now have a disproportionate sway in the Electoral College. Without air conditioning, it's possible that Reagan would have been elected in 1980, but he would have needed a different political coalition. He would have needed a different political strategy. And so you can't tell the story of how Reagan came to office without including air conditioning in that story. And now, Stephen Johnson, of course, we're telling a different story in the South. Other demographic changes can push the other way. We have political scientists and demographers warning us that the rising populations of minorities in Georgia is about to flip it democratic. So what's the GOP to do? Crank down the air conditioning? Or <laughs> Exactly. Yes, we need, we need to somehow undo this, this transformation. But actually, you know, the, I think the big story with air conditioning is what's happening on a global level because – what you're also seeing is some of the largest megacities in the world, some of the fastest growing urban areas on, on the planet are all in uh, tropical or semi-tropical areas area, or desert areas where no one lived uh, and no one could think about living 50 years ago. And air conditioning has kind of opened the door for those settlements. So here you have this technology that was originally designed to you know, just make the room a little nicer to sit in and you know, cool the air, take the humidity out of the air. And now it is constantly triggering changes in human settlement pattern, patterns that are so profound, they're visible from space. I mean, I think that's a pretty amazing thing. How air conditioning causes human migration, how human migration causes changes in politics, how changes in politics give us new president, Stephen Johnson, author of How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World. Thanks so much, Stephen. Yeah, my pleasure. Hi, I'm Colin Con savage I'm 11 years old, and I made my own prosthetic hand using a 3D printer. I found the design on the internet. My local library used their 3D printer to print the parts, and my mom and I assembled it. Making a functioning hand was easier than I expected. I was born with shortened fingers on my left hand, which got me a lot of odd looks. Now with my 3D printed prosthetics, I get different kinds of looks, and they come with compliments. Being different can be fun, plus I can hold so much more. So I'm a big fan of 3D printers, for obvious reasons, but they can do a lot more than just make prosthetics. Some doctors have used 3D printers to make small objects to help with surgery. Sometimes they make 3D printed models to help them study tumors and injuries. There are even some researchers trying to print functioning human organs. Imagine if one day people didn't have to wait in line for a new kidney or liver. I also want to remind you that 3D printers are an American innovation. The first one was made in 1983 by an American engineer named Chuck Hull. We're developing a new technology. This is so that the designer can directly make a prototype from the image that he has on the screen of his terminal. We call this technology stereolithography or three-dimensional printing. And here's another important thing. 3D printing is an innovation that actually speeds up the process of innovating. It used to take weeks or months to build a model for a new invention. Nair design can become reality in less than a day. For car makers and other manufacturers, this is a huge time saver. America might not be making as many things as we used to, but Chuck Hull made the 3D printer, and I made my own prosthetic hand. Hi, I'm Christopher Catronbone. I'm the co-founder of the Migrant Offshore Aid Station, or MOAS, and I spend most of my time at sea. The reason why I set up MOAS and why I want you to value GPS as much as I do has nothing to do with being able to easily find my nearest Starbucks. It has everything to do with the world's biggest refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War. As we speak, there are hundreds, probably thousands of refugees adrift at sea. These families don't often know where they are or where they're heading. GPS not only tells me where I am, but it also shows me and my team where we can safely take those we are able to rescue. Of course, you'll know GPS does so much more. This amazing system uses more than two dozen satellites in outer space, all equipped with transmitters and atomic clocks. But here's why I think the Global Positioning System is America's best innovation. Beyond its ability to pinpoint my exact location with incredible accuracy, 
GPS simply saves lives. It's an invention that can help us track down those in distress or caught up in a disaster faster than ever before. The minutes saved here, we know, can often make the difference between life and death. Turn right onto Northside Drive Southwest. The world's first GPS satellites were launched in 1978. Come 1993, the system was fully operational, and a few years later, GPS fundamentally changed the way we view our world when President Bill Clinton made the system available to the private sector, and it's the reason why you can navigate the planet from the palm of your hand. Recalculating. And even for those lost at sea, it will determine not just where they are, but where they are going. In the early 20th century, human beings became cogs in the giant manufacturing facilities that stamped out cars, cut out the shapes that were sewn into dresses, slacks, and shirts. Gradually, factory floor inventions gave most of the work to machines that, like robotic arms, are immune to fatigue and maintain their precision through millions of cycles. The people who made that possible were the working-class heroes of an era— People like H. Joseph Gerber, a refugee from Austria and a Holocaust survivor, named in 1952 one of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's 10 most outstanding young men in America. Only under our American economic, moral, and social system is it possible to grow, to compete, and to create as free human beings and as free citizens. Gerber quite literally freed workers from the intensive and dangerous labor of manufacturing, inventing automated processes and machines that got him dubbed the Thomas Edison of manufacturing. Joseph Gerber's son, David Gerber, has just finished a biography of his dad called The Inventor's Dilemma, The Remarkable Life of H. Joseph Gerber. It's a story of magic and simplicity that began one day when Gerber's father shared his life-changing secret with his son. I was probably about... 12 years old when my dad first showed me his original invention and he showed me how I could use it for art projects. What was it exactly? So this was a device called the variable scale and what my dad showed me actually was an old pajama waistband. He brought me into his private office where he kept a lot of old memorabilia and he took this piece of cloth out of a tackle box that he kept there and he explained to me that this is what he used to start his company. And it was an invention that he came up with in college to solve uh, engineering problems. It was kind of touching as well for me because my dad had been a Holocaust survivor and that pair of pajamas was the one thing that he had been able to bring to America with him that his father had given him and his father never made it out. What is your understanding of what an inventor does based on your experience with your dad? What set him apart from somebody who just made tools in a tool and die shop? He was very astute at being able to recognize problems. And he was able to see in an object a new use, a metaphor for a new kind of object that he would be able to create. A metaphor for a new object. So he could look at what you and I see and see something else there. He could. Um, maybe his most important invention was the automated cloth cutting machine for making apparel. This is an example as, as well of a whole new approach to cloth cutting. What he did was he resorted to far-flung analogies, things like food packaging, shoe brushes, airplane wings, not the kind of things you would normally turn to. You know, most engineers, if they were given the task of coming up with a cloth-cutting machine, what they would probably do is open a book and look at designs of how cloth-cutting machines were made. That wasn't my dad's approach. Really? He would ask the question, what are we trying to accomplish here? He came out with products that people didn't realize they had a need for. Hmm. And he then embodied that in a system. And that system itself created new opportunities for more products. That was very much what my dad did. Do you think his experience as a Holocaust survivor gave him an ability to see the waste uh, perhaps better than some others? I think his Holocaust experience had a number of uh, influences on, on him as an innovator. He started out as a precocious boy who was inventing to cause a lot of trouble. He would electrocute the doorknobs in his room so people would come and get a shock and drop soup and so on. <laughs> 
What a delightful fellow. Yeah, he was. <laughs> uh, well, he was encouraged in his yeah, household. I, I got you. <laughs> um, and when the Holocaust came, he had to really turn his inventive talents to solving serious imminent problems. He actually saved himself and his family. He and his dad escaped into Switzerland, but then they were turned back over to the Gestapo and put on a train headed toward Dachau. And he figured out how to disengage a latching mechanism on a train car, so he and his father were able to jump the train. And there were a number of these examples. Secondly, I think the Holocaust experience gave him a very different view of risk. It was an environment in which if you did nothing, you're dead. Well, what a proud son you are. I'll call it a grateful son. I was very fortunate. My, my dad was uh, a better father than he was an inventor. <laughs> well, that is high praise indeed. David Gerber, thanks so much. It's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you, John. Hi, this is Melinda Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. On April 3, 1973, Motorola engineer Martin Cooper stood outside the Manhattan Hilton in New York City and made the world's very first cell phone call. The man on the other end was his rival at AT AT&T. I'm calling you from a cellular phone, Cooper said, a handheld, portable, real cellular phone. And there was silence at the other end of the line. It was a decade before Cooper's phone was available to the general public. Back then, it looked like a brick weighed more than two pounds, and cost almost $4,000. Almost everything about the phone has gotten smaller, except its reach. United Nations estimates there are now roughly 7 billion cell phone subscriptions worldwide. In low-income countries, many people, and many women in particular, don't have access to bank accounts. If a sudden expense comes up, They might have to pull a child out of school or sell something important to cover it. When people can have access to mobile money on their cell phones and other digital financial services, such as a savings account, all of that changes. These services help families to budget, save, and invest, enabling them not only to move out of poverty, but to stay out of it, too. I go to the application, and I simply query on the price for bananas... Mobile money is now ubiquitous in countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Philippines, and Bangladesh. I've seen it for myself, and it's absolutely transformative. Sure, Martin Cooper might have been able to imagine that cell phones would change the way we connect, the way we do business, the way we live. But even he probably couldn't have guessed the role they would play in empowering the world's most impoverished people. How many electronic adapters do you have in your home right now? Excuse me, let me rephrase that. How many landfills could you make out of the boxes of old outmoded adapters in your home right now? No, it's the 5 volt. I need the 5, the 50, oh, a 6 pin, 20, 30 pin. What? RS, what is that? Oh, where did that thing go? Where did that thing go? Get ready, folks, because it's just possible that Apple, the killer of the Firewire and the RS-232 connector and maker of any number of power cords that no longer fit any Apple devices, Apple is rumored to be getting ready to write the obit on the little mini headphone jack. Leander Caney is editor and publisher of the blog Cult of Mac and author of Johnny Ive, the genius behind Apple's greatest products, and he says this is a good thing. I remember there was huge howls of protest with the first iMac in the, in the late 90s when it didn't have a floppy drive. People um, said that that was going to be doomed because um, people wouldn't buy a computer that they couldn't use their old floppies with. And it happened with the first iPhone because it didn't have a physical keyboard uh, like the Palm Pilot and, and the BlackBerry. People said that no one would buy an iPhone without a keyboard. I mean, who would want it? Who would want a phone without a keyboard? Um, so, but, you know, if you look back on it, uh, they've actually done us a huge favor. Well, and there are landfills all over the world filled with Palm Pilots um, to, right. to uh, you know, attest precisely what you're saying. And uh, the fact that there are billions and billions of devices that still use the mini jack is no real power that Apple needs to worry that much about. Yes or no? Well, there's going to be a huge outcry. 
um, there's going to be the howling of, uh, you know, of biblical proportions about it because, like you say, uh, this is one of the oldest um, outstanding uh, connections and there, there are millions, you know, maybe hundreds of millions of headphones that will be rendered, um, you know, obsolete overnight. Actually, that's probably not true because they'll probably include an adapter. Oh, you think? Um, you think? Yeah, oh, most definitely, yeah. They, Actually, they some, some company in Bangalore will come up with an adapter. Oh, everyone will come up with an adapter, yeah. Um, although it's a very sophisticated connection. So, um, you know, this is why Apple charges so much for their cables. You know, they're famous for charging $60, $80 yeah. for, for what seems like a simple wire. But they're, they're actually, you know, include some very sophisticated chips and circuitry. So, uh, you know, you'll be able to get cheap knockoffs, but they probably won't be very good. Well, the, the three A's of modern technology, Apple produces anxiety, produces an opportunity for the adapter industry. <laughs> right. <laughs> Some yep, things absolutely. never change. Uh, Leander, yep. thanks so much. Thank you, John. Hi, I'm Adam Ferrara. I'm an actor-comedian you might know from my stand-up specials on Comedy Central or the TV shows Rescue Me, Nurse Jackie, or Top Gear. I'm a car guy. I'm going to tell you about an innovation that not only revolutionized the automotive industry, it ushered in the modern robotics era and captured the country's imagination. It was called the Unimate. It was patented in 1961 by an American inventor named George Duvall. It was the world's first programmable industrial robot arm. Now, instead of relying on humans to do repetitive, mind-numbing, dangerous factory work... Walk it off, Al! A giant robotic arm could do it. And do it more precisely, do it more efficiently, and provide a safer environment for the factory worker. By limiting their fatigue, their exposure to toxic materials and dangerous machinery, it vastly reduced industrial accidents. By the mid-60s, automotive manufacturing was everywhere. Chrysler, GM, and Ford all had the Unimate on their assembly lines. And Japanese companies were interested as well. They invested in Duval's model and eventually adapted their own versions. The Unimate was a global manufacturing marvel and a cultural phenomenon. A robot for industry. Oh, yeah. In 1966, the giant arm even made an appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Now, it didn't say much, but it opened a beer can, sank a putt, and even led the band. You know who else introduced themselves on television in the 1960s and captivated a nation? Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. I'm just saying. Today, robots make everything. With all due respect to the other innovations on this list, everything comes back to cars. We're a mobile society. Air conditioning, it's in your car. The GPS, it's in your car. The mobile phone. Did you notice the word mobile? Who says, look, I got to go. I'll call you from the sewing machine. Nobody. And I love a screaming electric guitar. But how the hell do you think Hendrix got to the gig in the first place? We're going to go back to making stuff. That's going to make America great again. It ain't Donald Trump. It's the arm. Vote for the arm. I'm Adam Ferrara, and I approve this message. This is John Hockenberry. So that's the first nine candidates, the electric guitar, Kevlar, the hearing aid, the sewing machine, AC, air conditioning, the 3D printer, GPS, global positioning system, the cell phone, and the robotic arm. That's nine. The tenth we said would be your choice and left that up to you. And there was a lively debate you had amongst yourselves. Hi, I'm Kevin Kelly, co-founder of Wired Magazine. As someone who has dedicated almost my entire life to exploring the social impact that technology has had on our lives, one fact is inescapable. Smartphones, laptops, tablets, very likely whatever gadget you're using to listen to me right now, none of them would even exist without one key American innovation the transistor. Even more important than printed circuits in space conservation are the minute transistors, which perform the same function as much larger vacuum tubes, and yet draw only a fraction of the current required by tubes. For something so tiny, it's really packed a punch. The humble transistor started its life way back in 1947. It was developed by three men working at Bell Labs in New Jersey. They set out to find an alternative to energy-sucking vacuum tubes, which at the time were the heart and brains of America's growing telephone network. Their solution? The tiny, cool transistor. Before long, it was doing a whole lot more than just improving phone calls. Enter the pocket-sized transistor radio, which debuted in 1954. 
It was a revolutionary device that in many ways laid the foundation for more portable forms of tech. All these features contribute to modern switching in computer systems. And that brings us to computer microchips, which are packed with millions of even tinier transistors. Thanks to microchips today, computers that used to take up acres of space can now fit into the palm of your hand or be worn on your wrist. The final three innovations are the sewing machine, the mobile phone, and your pick, the transistor. We'll announce the winner shortly. But first, a quick nod to our partner in this series, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. Tom Lockwood is their executive director. He's a dear friend of the takeaway. He's a firm believer in the power of innovation to keep our infrastructure safe and to keep America moving forward. I think innovation has always been with us. I mean, you go back to the Egyptians trying to move water. Uh, it was innovation trying to solve problems. It was man's ambition to do big things, um, to make the world a better, safer a place with more utility, uh, to improve the quality of life. It, it, it just goes hand in hand with innovation. And uh, what does the ASME do in terms of monitoring innovation and, you know, keeping track of the safety of, you know, all the stuff that we don't pay any attention to? Right. So we at ASME follow innovation as it finds its way into society. And we as engineers think uh, about the public safety and the application of that. So in the um, middle of the 19th century, steam was discovered as this ubiquitous source of energy. But it ha would have problems. I mean it would create explosions and the engineering, uh, insurance and manufacturing industries got together and said, you know, there's got to be a better way. And through collaboration and discussion, the standards came about. The idea that we can codify best practice, understand what was causing these explosions and contain it, fix it. And as a result, Steam explosions went to zero and now we have pressure equipment in our home, whether it's your home boiler or your toilet for that matter, and it's not going to blow up because of standards and because of that public safety. Uh, and so now as the world has gone on and, and you have the rapid evolution of technologies, standards have to keep up and it's a big challenge for organizations like ours. Is that collaboration that you described there, engineers getting together with insurance people and public safety – officials and deciding that there, there needs to be standards, that uh, technology can't just run roughshod. It can't just all be Steve Jobs in the garages. There has to be some sort of strategy brought to the table. Uh, standards really do two things. One is it provides a common language, um, the idea that you can manufacture component parts for a nuclear power plant in China and install them in Pakistan. The other is about safety and, and that comes sometimes after the fact, sometimes after a disaster. So for example, in the um, Deepwater Horizon event in the Gulf, that was at the cutting edge of technology. That was at incredible depth, incredible pressures, things that hadn't really been seen before. Standards don't exist yet for that. Uh, the industries are doing the best they can to conform and ensure public safety. But because they're at the cutting edge of that technology and it may be proprietary, Public safety sometimes comes not second but isn't always top of mind as opposed to getting to market. Now, you know, when I think of innovation, I think of no standards, no constraints, that uh, you're thinking out of the box. You're yeah. running away from all of those traditional institutions and you say that in fact you can't do that without compromising public safety. Right. So – if you think about innovation, it often isn't these big, huge breakthroughs. It's usually applying adjacent technologies or it's usually kind of taking it to the next level. So looking at the collection of finalists in your innovation series, many of those came about through evolution. They, they weren't just kind of this – that cell phone uh, didn't show up just one day. It, 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 it was a progression of technologies to the point where now there are more than 5 billion cell phones on the planet. The same thing with the sewing machine was an evolution. And so the idea that, that the most cutting-edge technologies achieve these kind of breakthrough status when there's sociology and, and technology kind of merge. What's the joy in uh, this? I mean, the, you know, there's this kind of get-rich-quick, um, you know, lightning strikes in one place sort of story that goes along with the Steve Jobs and the Thomas Edisons of the world. But uh, if you spend any time at the ASME, this is a quiet – 
dedicated priesthood of folks, some of whom may have difficulty telling a joke, um, some of whom <laughs> may have difficulty understanding a joke. But 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 still, th- this is a crucial piece of how things get done and why things don't blow up. Yeah, um, it's true. There's a reverence and a sense of uh, this audacious responsibility that comes with standards development. The idea is, is we as engineers just are thrilled to death by technology and the idea of how it might transform and improve the quality of life. And it's all possible that we can have clean water and ubiquitous energy and uh, adequate and safe food supply. But standards are going to be at the root of it and there's going to be organizations like ASME who are, are going to be there all along, understanding the importance of standards, understanding that it can be done, uh, understanding that yeah, when things happen, we can learn from that and make it better. Um, and so the joy comes from this seeing the technology and innovation applied to improve the quality of life. And just think about it. Think about how jazzed up people are getting about these innovations on your show. I, I, I just am thrilled by that and appreciate the attention that it's getting and not just by engineers but everyone who kind of – we're all kind of live uh, immersed in technology this day and age. Tom, it's always great to talk to you and it, I just always get – enthused about uh, your passion over all this sort of stuff and uh, you know I'll, I'll go home and maybe fix that drawer in my kitchen well thanks my John wife's if, bugging me if you need help I, I can I can refer a couple of engineers to help you and and, and uh, thank you for your time and attention thank you so much for giving uh, for celebrating innovation um, it's it's the it's the American and it's the human endeavor thank you so as we said we're down to three in our search for America's greatest innovation the sewing machine the mobile phone and your nomination the transistor Of these, the greatest impact on our culture, our economy, our way of life came from, according to your weeks of voting, America's greatest innovation is the transistor. Congrats to all of you wise technovator, commentator, judges, and voters. Let's explore one of the early transistor-driven disruptors, the transistor radio. Small, portable, perfect for low-fidelity AM radio. Easy to carry single records, each contained two songs, but the transistor radio contained all songs or anything the DJ was willing to play. Steve Greenberg is the Grammy Award-winning founder of S-Curve Records, known for such hits as Who Let the Dogs Out by Baja Men and Stacy's Mom by Fountains of Wayne. Steve is also the author of How the Beatles Went Viral in 64, and the transistor was partly how. When Top 40 Radio started in the 50s, which which really happened because television had become popular and all the other kinds of programming that was on the radio at the time became uh, economically unfeasible. And so stations turned to playing records, which was the cheapest form of programming. The thing that really caused the format to take off was the popularity of the transistor radio because suddenly the audience was not only bigger, but it was it was everywhere. Kids listened to the transistor radio in two different ways when they wanted to listen to it privately, right? One was they would put it up to their ear real close the same way that we would hold a cell phone to our ear today. And then also there was the earplug. Right, not an earbud. It was the earplug. Right, right, because AM radio was in mono, you only needed one earplug in one of your ears to hear the whole program. And your dad owned headphones. Yes. If he did it all. But the earplug was great because, of course, you would take the transistor radio into bed with you at night right. and you could listen to music without your parents knowing. And that was the first time the kids were able to do that. The band that really most benefited from the transistor radio was the Beatles. One of the luckiest things that happened to the Beatles was that I Want to Hold Your Hand was released on December 26, 1963, which is significant because the most popular stocking stuff or gift of 1963 was the cheap transistor radio. And so all these kids got transistor radios on Christmas morning 1963 and Capitol Records released I Want to Hold Your Hand the next day. And And they bought the single on the 27th. They were holding hands by the 28th and New Year's Eve – Everybody was listening to the song at every, at every New Year's Eve party. In fact, you know, I Want to Hold Your Hand actually sold 250,000 singles in the first three days. Do you think every mobile audio device since then is an echo of that original transistor radio, the beatbox, the Bluetooth speaker, the uh, you know, all kinds of things that are available today? Yes, but what the transistor radio had that was unique is that it actually enhanced both the public listening experience and the private listening experience. And most technologies before or since enhanced one or the the other. other. The boombox was public. The Walkman was private. The transistor radio was both. 
Steve Greenberg, Grammy Award-winning founder of S-Curve Records, author of How the Beatles Went Viral in 64. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you. So congratulations to the transistor. According to our popular vote, it is America's greatest innovation. I mean, if you think about it, would we have something like a podcast without the transistor? It's a great invention, a great American story. You can find out more online at thetakeaway.org. Just search for innovation. Our thanks again to the American Society for Mechanical Engineers and the Lemelson Foundation for their help with our search. Sorry, Kevlar. Thanks for listening. I'm John Hockenberry. This is The Takeaway. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.